You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, keep those texts coming in. We respond sometimes during the course of the break, or we try to get them on the air when possible. Sign them if possible. We'd like to give you some sort of credit on the air. Back to hockey here, and we're going to hit a few different topics this segment. We had some really nice commentary coming in about Jim Houston. So I wanted to share a couple of those texts, Jamie. I'm not sure if you've seen any, but I'll start with this one. Jim Houston is retired. We're seeking him for the final hour of the program today. If it works for his time, we will certainly have Jim on. He's always been accommodating in the past and always loved the conversations that we've had. This one comes in, Jamie. In the early 80s, I worked at MW with Jim. In fact, my first NW sportscast was the 10 p.m. major taking his place when he took ill. I remember when he was tabbed to take Jim Robson's place for the first game. Robson didn't do either on radio or TV for the first time as a Canucks play-by-play man. Huey walked around the station with a pencil practicing in his first game, Montreal, Saturday night at the Forum. Great guy, great broadcaster. I'll miss him. I guarantee you there are a lot of other stories out there like that. Oh, I mean, the reaction we're already seeing is just universally positive. And how could it not be? He was just so good at his job for so long. Really the voice of hockey for so many people in Canada. And then, as you said, I mean, he's always been incredibly accommodating with us, making time for us when we've asked him to come on the show and have a conversation. And from what I've heard and from what I'm seeing today, I mean, that wasn't anything out of the ordinary with Jim. That's how he was with everyone. Always always being willing to you know, give back, give his time, offer advice come on a show, whatever the case is, that was really the experience people had with Jim Houston. This one comes up. I'm happy for Jim Houston because he was the voice of my childhood like Bob Cole was for so many other people. And that, to me, is one of the great hallmarks of a great broadcaster, and, and that texture is exactly accurate. I grew up in the Bob Cole era, so Bob Cole is the voice of hockey for me, and we can debate about who your favorite is or which guy does a better job of play-by-play and what wrinkle this person adds that the other one doesn't, but Bob Cole is the voice of hockey for me, and Jim Houston is that for so many of our listeners out there. Yeah, he really, really is. And Joel in Calgary texted in. He had an old-time hockey voice. He'll be missed. I think that's a great way of putting it. It just felt like he was meant to be doing hockey play-by-play. We also had uh, someone text in, uh, and they they, they, uh, started their text by saying, this is from a Canucks hater in Calgary. And, of course, you know, Jim Houston did do local Canucks broadcasts uh, for a long time as well. So he has kind of a special place in the hearts of Canucks fans. But this is from a self-proclaimed Canucks hater in Calgary, remembering some of uh, Jim Houston's great calls and how much he enjoyed them. So you certainly did not have to be someone living in Vancouver and watching Canucks games to appreciate the work Jim Houston was doing. Well, and that's the other mark of somebody who's great at their job once they enter the broadcasting world. And whether they go from regional to national or they're a former player who comes on and they're associated with the team. We've mentioned this with Kevin Bieksa. There are a lot of our listeners in Calgary who saw that Bieksa was going to be on the Hockey Night in Canada panel and they didn't like it because they didn't like Kevin Bieksa, sworn enemy of the Calgary Flames. And then week by week, month by month, they watched Bieksa and begrudgingly went, he's pretty good. He's pretty good at what he does. I'm a fan now. Not Never thought I was going to be able to say it. And it works that way for broadcasters, too, because you associate them with certain teams. And you think, like, there is this tendency of fans and listeners to think, ah, oh, that guy's a homer for that team. Homer oh, yeah. only cares about that team. He's calling it the way that Canucks fans want to hear it or Flames fans want to hear it. But then that person goes national, and once you get a little bit removed from that, the really good ones are able to convince 
the broad audience, you know what? Pretty good at his job. I always do laugh, though, about guys like Jim Houston, and he's doing the Leafs game, and you get the two competing ideologies. You get the Leafs fans saying, yes. ah, Jim Houston, he's a West Coast guy. He's yeah. always calling things against the Leafs. And then you get the other people, ah, look at Houston, he's a Leafs homer. Like, yeah. nobody no, seems to agree on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He would always get it from both sides. I, I will say the complaints from uh, Leafs fans on that point always made me laugh because they would literally be like, you know, oh, he said great save Luongo. It's like, well, did Luongo make a great save? Yes. So I'm not really sure <laughs> what the issue is here. Those ones always made me laugh. And that's the one. That's one of the iconic calls from yes. Jim Houston. Great save Luongo often came after it when he was doing Canucks games, but there's plenty of other goaltenders who've had that on their resume as well. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I've seen people already sharing on Twitter as well, you know, how cool it was when Jim Benning – or, excuse me, Jim Benning – when Jim Houston was doing uh, games for the Canucks in the bubble playoff run, right, to hear get, hear that great save get applied to a Thatcher Demko save, right, after hearing it for so many years with Roberto Luongo. This one comes in. Randy in Calgary says, Jim Houston, simply the best. Better than Cole Foster, even Danny. Why retire now? Family decision, Randy. Sounds like it was Jim's choice. Sounds like after consultation with his family, this was the right time to step away. He's been doing this for 42 years. Yeah. You know, Jamie, you and I have referenced a couple of things we've done during the pandemic and that first three-month or four-month stretch when there was absolutely nothing on and the world was at a standstill, especially, I mean, the world certainly that we talk about on a daily basis. And one of the things we did in the final of our program at that time is we did a Best of BC tour and we did an episode on Fort St. John. And it's easy to forget that Jim Houston worked his up from one of the smaller towns in British Columbia to the national platform that he got. Yes, and again, you know, on the question of why now, as you said, a family decision, and it's it's not as if he had a lot of, you know, mountains left to climb in the world of hockey broadcasting. As he said in his statement, you know, he achieved his goal. He worked on the final day of the season at the highest level, calling Stanley Cup finals on CBC and national TV, Hockey Night in Canada, in Canada, right? And once you've done that, not that you immediately are going to step away after that, but I'm sure Jim Houston isn't looking at this at this and saying, oh, I wish I could have just done these few more things. He he accomplished everything he set out to do. This texter says, I only played the NHL video game for a few years stretch. He's still the video game guy to me because he did that voice for <laughs> EA for a number of years, and that is that has changed hands. James Sabolski currently does that for the NHL video game. That's a good point, and I didn't think of that one. Eric in Dawson Creek says, Jim Houston will forever be my favorite broadcaster, not only because he's the voice of my childhood, and born in the same town as I was, but also because he's such a stand-up good guy. It will be sad not to hear him anymore, but he had one heck of a career. I feel lucky, lucky to have, able, have been able to grow up with him. I think a lot of people would and echo I, that. I think that's exactly how a lot of people would feel, and obviously the, the extra tie-in there for the texture because they're born in the same town, that's always going to give you that, that little bit boost of pride in somebody who makes it as big as Jim Houston did. And uh, But I think that... Description other than that, yeah, that matches what a lot of people are thinking and feeling right now. And guys, riffing off the one text that we got about Jim Houston being the video game voice, he was also a brief stint as the video game voice for the Triple Play Baseball series as well. So baseball and hockey, he was part of my childhood. Good stuff, Greg. People forget, because Jim's yep. NHL broadcasting career has been so esteemed, that Jim was a Major League Baseball broadcaster, and he was a part of those broadcast teams that did the 92-93 Jays World Series runs. Yeah, that's not a bad thing to have kind of way down your resume. <laughs> right? That's all right. And, oh, yeah, I got, to, I got to call these World Series champion teams as well. I was a big part of that. That's pretty cool. 
Not bad. Yeah, it's decent to have that on your resume as well. Some people want me to put my back into it when I say, great save, Luongo. And I'm sure that Flames fans would like to hear, great save, Markstrom. When Canucks fans want to hear, great save, Demko. They won't hear it from Jim Hewson anymore, but nonetheless, they will want those calls this season. I want to transition into a topic here about the conversation du jour in Vancouver and every day for the last number of days, which is the unsigned free agents. Brock Besser has some insight to that, as you know, Jamie. He negotiated his contract a couple of years ago. He didn't get it signed until mid-September, so he had to hit the ground running in training camp. He was on Sportsnet 650 yesterday and had this to say about his experience when he wasn't a part of the operation and he was waiting for that contract to be done. You know, the first couple days, I think everyone knows with uh, Coach Green is uh, pretty hard, so uh, just kind of you know building that chemistry with all the guys and working hard uh, it, it sucked kind of sitting on my couch back home watching it that so i think that kind of pushed things along and it kind of made it more urgent for both sides to get it done just to be there and get get with the guys in camp and um, you know get preseason games under your belt too and if quinn hughes and or elias Pettersson, because i believe they will sign at the same time hold yes. their press conference together arrive in vancouver together if those two players go through what Brock Besser went through, they are going to have the same feeling. They are going to have that, I know where I'm supposed to be, I want to get there, and this is where the high-stakes poker ramps up a little bit. The Canucks know that, and Pedersen and Hughes and their agent knows that the longer they stay out, the more pressure there is from the fan base, and the season's getting close, and are these guys going to be ready to go? Who blinks first? Well, and it's easy to look at it, and say, okay, the team is the only one who's going to feel pressure here because they need to win, and we know the position Jim Benning is in. He needs to win, right, for his job security. It's easy to think that only the Canucks will feel that pressure, right, when training camp gets going, when the preseason gets going, you know, as the regular season creeps up. But to your point, for for guys who are as competitive as professional athletes are, and as we know that Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are, that feeling of, man, this is weird. I'm not with my team. I'm not getting ready for the season in the same way I could be. Yeah, I'm skating by myself. I'm skating. In this case, the two are going to be skating together in Michigan, as we found out. But that sense of this is not where I should be, as you say, that ramps up the pressure from the player's perspective as well. It sure does. And we had someone text the show earlier today, hey, what do you make of the report that Elias Pettersson, he's not in Vancouver, he's left Vancouver, he's flown to Michigan, he's living with Quinn Hughes right now, and the two of them are in Michigan. That makes a lot of sense to me, quite frankly, because all of Pettersson's peers in Vancouver, they're going to be going to training camp tomorrow. He still doesn't have a contract. Assuming that's not done in the next 24 hours, who's Pettersson going to skate and train with? He's going to find some people around town. He's going to do it on his own. These two guys, as I said earlier, they're going to sign at the same time. It'll be a joint press conference. If it's not, I'll be very surprised. So to live together, work out together, skate together on a daily basis makes a lot of sense with me rather than each of them doing it individually. Yeah, I don't see this as any great controversy whatsoever. As you said, they got to skate somewhere. And yeah, there might be other options, but why not do it with at least one teammate, right? You can't be around your entire team. Isn't skating with one of the your teammates better than none of them? So I don't have an issue with it whatsoever. Skating is something that people have pointed to with Brock Besser since his rookie season. He's always been able to score. We know about the shot, but what about the skating? How good was it? How much could it improve? Would it hold up over the length of his career? It's something that Brock Besser, during that interview yesterday, talked about that he wants to improve on. 
you know, my skating can always improve because you see some of these guys that come in the league and they're just flying around the ice. So, um, you know, that's such a key component is, you know, being a, a really good skater. And, you know, I'm trying to really work on um, not moving my upper body as much when I skate. So I think that takes away a lot of energy when, you know, you're striding down the ice. So that was kind of a little thing I was working on this summer. But other than that, I was just trying to you know, continue work, continue to work on my shot and you know, everything else. Yeah, the shot's just fine, and we saw saw that yeah. shot really come back in the bubble after it had seemingly been absent in, in, with the regularity that we saw it. It came back in the bubble. That was a guy who was on a mission. He didn't like the reports that were out there that his name was out in possible trade scenarios or someone had reported or uh, alleged that he was being shopped. Besser didn't like that. He took it personally. Throw in the Michael Jordan meme right there, and he came out and he showed that <laughs> the shot was just fine. Thank you very much. And, hey, skating is something that improved last year. Brock Besser improved last year. It was a terrible year for the Vancouver Canucks. Terrible, even though Jack Hughes only said that factually and people are mad at him for doing that. But Brock Besser, Jamie, Brock Besser was one of the very few good stories you could point to on the roster last season. He was really good. And it gets lost because people, you know, even Canucks fans don't want to spend a lot of time lingering on what happened for the Canucks last season or thinking about it in too much detail because it was such a disaster and it was such a nightmare and it was such a slog, really, especially towards the end of the year with the COVID problems and there's no fans and you're playing the same teams over and over. They had to reschedule those games with Calgary and they were going on while the actual playoffs are going on. It was just a bizarre slog of a season. So the, the temptation is to kind of erase it from your mind and yeah, nothing good happened. Let's move on. Brock Besser had an excellent, excellent year. His best year from a point production standpoint as like points per game, right? Because he didn't play as many games as he has in years past. He was really good. And you saw the, I think, development of him as more of a complete player as well, right? Not just about being a sniper, but being somebody somebody who, you know, the coaching staff can trust in different situations. Somebody who can drive play. As he said, he worked on his skating. The shot was there. It was really his most successful season, I think, as an NHL player. And you're right. They didn't play as many games in the NHL last year, but he played as many games as he possibly could. And that might be the most important statistic with Brock Besser, who had that label of, can he stay healthy for an entire year? Freak accident ended his rookie season. We've seen the wrist issues over the years. Besser has battled through injuries like a lot of NHLers have, but it was a legitimate question for some coming into last year. How is his body going to hold up? Well, he played all 56 games, led the Canucks in goals, led the Canucks in points. And it's a reminder that as bad as some things go, there's still a good story somewhere in there. Calgary had a terrible season last year. Calgary might have had the biggest fall off from expectation to actual result in the National Hockey League last year. They were, if not the most disappointing teams, in a very small group that people were talking about at the end of the last season because the expectation was... Definitely a playoff team, maybe as high as second in the Canadian division, depending on which pundits you talk to, and they were nowhere near making the playoffs when all was said and done. But even within that, in Calgary, there was a similar story. Maybe not quite the same scoring exploits, but Andrew Mangiapane was that guy in the forward group, wasn't he, last year? He was the Brock Besser for the Calgary Flames. Yeah, and it's a different caliber of player that we're talking about. And, you know, the the expected ceiling is very different for the two players. But 
in terms of a guy who took a major step forward and despite all of the bad stuff happening around him with the rest of the team, you know, Andrew Mangiapane, now you look at it and say, okay, that's a guy we can rely on going forward. That's a guy that we can ask to play a significant role based on what he did last year. And while they're in two different snack brackets when it comes to their compensation, they are in a similar situation coming into this year. They're both on the final year of their current contract. They're both looking to get a raise next year as RFAs. And I imagine Mangiapane percentage-wise is going to want a bigger jump than Brock Besser, who makes under $6 million coming off the season we just described. And because of the way Besser's contract is structured right now, the qualifying offer for Besser is going to have to be pretty high. He makes seven point five million dollars in real money this year so his next contract they're going to be talking about that range Manjipani's not going to jump to that high on actual dollar value but if he produces the way he did last year and he does it over 82 games and he's seen as part of the future in Calgary he's going to get a significant raise for a guy who's making under three million dollars this season yeah he's absolutely going to be in line for a raise and he's going to be you know, a player that Calgary, I think, will feel they have to lock up, right, to keep adding to their core, keep building their core. He's 25, so he's not a super young player, but he's still in that prime offensive point of his career. And as you say, if he's able to back up what he did last year, he's going to need a, a pretty nice new contract. Not a, not something that, you know, breaks the bank for Calgary by any stretch of the imagination, but something decent. So if things are going to go well for the Flames this year, there are going to have to be some bounce-back years from some key parts. I'm not breaking new ground with that. Same goes for the Vancouver Canucks. Hey, Pedersen's got to stay healthy and need to see a little more consistency than we saw early in the year. JT Miller's got to get back to being that guy. We can go down the list. But, Jamie, when we have that conversation, we talk about bounce-back years, you have to remember that those good stories, they need to be in and around where they were as well. Like Brock Besser... If he doesn't improve on what he did last year, he needs to stay at that same level. Andrew Mangiapane is the exact same way. And throw that out to the listeners. If you're a Canucks fan, what's your level of confidence that Brock Besser can replicate the season he had last year? If you're a Flames fan, weigh in on Andrew Mangiapane. You can cross the Rockies if you want and weigh in on the other team's player. What's your level of confidence that these seasons can be replicated by these particular wingers? Well, and it's a good point, too, because going into the year, fans, and I think us in the media as well, Scotty, we spend a lot of time thinking of reasons why players could bounce back, right? Why players who didn't have a great year, okay, here's why that was an aberration. Here's why I think they're going to be a lot better this coming season. But you always have to keep in mind the reverse is true as well. And somebody who had a really, really good year, that might end up being a career year for them. That's always a possibility, right? Like, career years happen. That's just a fact of life. Sometimes a player who takes a major step forward, they're not going to sustain that kind of performance. Now, I think in the case of Brock Besser and Andrew Mangiapane, in the case of both of them, you can look at what they did last year and make a pretty strong argument that, okay, even if it's not exactly that from a statistical production point of view, these are still going to be really effective, important players for us. But it's just something in general that you always have to keep in mind. It's great to look at the guys who didn't do so hot and come up with reasons why they're going to be a lot better. But don't forget, the the reverse can happen for the good players from last year too. Yeah, you see those those career years, and sometimes there's no way to replicate. Like Johnny Hockey, for yep. example, had the 99-point year. He might get close to that. Does it feel like he's going to get back to that, especially with the way this team is expected to play? You're going to be hard-pressed to make a case. No, and I think with Johnny Gaudreau, you know, okay, he had 49 points in 56 games last year, right? He's 28. He just turned 28. How much 
advancement can you really realistically expect? As you said, that 99-point season looks like the high watermark. That looks like the career year. So if you're just anywhere in and around that point per game total with Johnny Gaudreau, I think you're thrilled at this point. So if I'm comparing a player from Vancouver to Johnny Gaudreau based on last season, it would be JT Miller. JT yes. Miller and Johnny Gaudreau, for me, like their overall production at the end of the year, it's not as high as you'd like it to be, but it's not terrible. And they both went through these big peaks and valleys during the course of the season. And Miller's valley started early, and it was much publicized. Johnny Hockey started the opposite way. He was off to a good start. Then it dipped. There were times where it improved. Miller was the same way. They lost Pedersen in Vancouver. All of a sudden, JT Miller's playing center, and he's playing extremely well, and he's helping carry the team. But there were these big these big waves, if you will, that, like a massive amplification in where the ceiling and floor was, whereas in previous years, not necessarily the exact same ones, but in previous years with those two players, Jamie, there was so much more consistency to what you were going to see on a night-in, night-out basis. Well, and with Johnny Goudreau, I mean, he is he's out there to score points, right? So you really need that certain level of point production from Johnny Goudreau to feel like you're getting value for the player. With JT Miller, look, the the first year he was in Vancouver and he's up over a point per game, 72 points in 69 games. That's fantastic. You're probably not going to get that year in, year out from JT Miller. Like from a statistical production standpoint, that might be his career year. But the difference with JT Miller is you don't necessarily need him to be up at that point per game threshold to feel like you're getting a really good contribution from him, right? Because he does have a lot of other value as a player who's reliable in both directions, right? He's somebody who can drive play. And I think that more than an increase in points is what they need to see more of from JT Miller this season, right? They need to see less of the inconsistency, less of the bad passes and the bad turnovers. They need to get him back to being that reliable kind of emotional leader player for them, which he really wasn't last year. He was at times, but you're right. From a consistency standpoint, it wasn't that at the beginning of the season. It felt like a lot more at the end. Never forget, JT Miller was the guy who held that Zoom call and put it out there that the players weren't comfortable with the way this was going and the schedule coming back after the massive COVID outbreak in Vancouver. He showed some great leadership at times, but it was questioned at others, especially earlier in the season when... In an empty arena, his gripes were amplified yep. on, on a lot of the broadcasts, and, and people took issue with that with Miller last season. It's kind of like a quarterback with J.T. Miller. Like, he's a guy, he's never going to go through a season where he doesn't throw an interception. The question is, what's the ratio going to be between touchdowns and interception? He's going to make some high-risk passes in his own zone. But does he throw enough touchdowns at the other end to make up for that? Yeah, the ratio was extremely off last year, right? And again, it doesn't have to be about goals and points scored, but that ratio has to be a lot better for JT Miller. Hopefully we won't get ratioed today as we look at our social media <laughs> at some point during the course of this program. I'm guessing there is a guy who's getting ratioed if he takes to social media today. He should probably stay away from it. He's joined... I don't even know if we call it an elite group. It's a really odd group right now in professional sports, and he's added another sport to the mix. We'll tell you who that is next, and we'll talk to Gord Stellick, former general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. It's a story you see, Jamie, and you go, yeah, that is easy to believe. In fact, I'm not surprised at all, and there's only one entity that's in a precarious position in the whole thing. And the story is this. Ben Simmons wants out of Philadelphia. The talented Sixers point guard 
doesn't want to play there anymore. And I think Sixers fans are probably just fine with that, Jamie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is not – no great surprise here, right? That Because we know the Sixers have been looking to move, and, move on from Ben Simmons potentially, you know, despite what they might say. Obviously, there's been trade discussions with other teams, but not a big surprise at all that, yeah, Ben Simmons feels exactly the same way. The feeling is mutual there. Not going to show up for camp, never intends to play for the Sixers again. And he joins this elite group of disgruntled star players who all have different problems with their respective situations. Deshaun Watson, Jack Eichel, now Ben Simmons. Now, he doesn't have problems at the level those two have. Deshaun Watson's problems are legal. Jack Eichel's problems are physical. Ben Simmons, I suppose, is a physical problem. His shot is the problem right now. But many people believe that can be worked on, and even if it's not, they believe they have such a productive player that they would want him. The only the only entity here that has a problem is the Philadelphia 76ers. They do. They've had a problem for a while with Ben Simmons, though, and I'm not sure how much today's news changes it because there's the idea that all of a sudden he's removed all of their leverage from the situation, and I understand that, but I don't know how much leverage they had Anyway, they obvi- even before the news today, it was pretty clear that it would be a disaster if the Sixers tried to roll Ben Simmons back out as their point guard starting alongside Joel Embiid. Well, we've seen what's happened with Houston. They want to trade Deshaun Watson. They'd be happy to move him if the price is right. Same deal in Buffalo. You can have Jack Eichel, and you guys can figure out what his medical, medical procedure is going to be if the price is right. And this is the problem the Sixers have right now. They know he's a good player. They know that his time in Philly's done. But they also want a boatload of assets for Ben Simmons. And you are you are catering to a very specific market of teams that either have those assets or would be, in most cases, even willing to consider giving them up with the ask right now that is probably coming out of Philly. And the problem also is, right, you know, the reason that they're trying to trade Ben Simmons from Philadelphia is he's not a good fit with their team. He's not a good fit with their other star player. Well, that's the case in a lot of other places as well, right? When you are a player like Ben Simmons in today's NBA and you literally can't shoot, right? Like, he, it's not even that he's a bad three-point shooter. It's that he will not do it. He has a non-existent perimeter shot. It's hard to find a good fit for that player in today's NBA. So, yes... He's still very talented. He's still very productive. But you can understand why other teams are looking at this and saying, well, Philly just tried this as, ha- as you know, Ben Simmons being the second best player on their team. And now they're desperately trying to get out of it. Does it make sense for us to invest a whole bunch in making him the second best player on our team? Here's why Philly has a bigger problem from a competitive standpoint than the other two. Philly's expected to win. Philly was expected to win with Ben Simmons. And that's not going to change because of the nucleus of this team, even without him in the lineup. So they need to get something that helps them now or create the financial flexibility and work a three-way deal, whatever it happens to be. They need to be good right now. In Houston, they know the value of a franchise quarterback. Everybody does. It's the hardest position in sports, and when you get one, you don't let him go. Deshaun Watson's not going to play for that organization again, but you got to be able to recoup so many assets so that you can put yourself in position to find another one. But Houston's not expected to do anything this year, Jamie. In fact, it's a pleasant surprise for Texans fans that they've won a game and been extremely competitive against one of the better teams in the AFC, the Cleveland Browns. Buffalo has that going as well. They need a return on Jack Eichel, but does anybody expect the Sabres to do much this year as they go through their latest rebuild? No, they don't have to. They don't feel any pressure whatsoever to win games this year. It's all about setting themselves up for the future in Philly. It's a completely different conversation. 
Well, let's talk to somebody who has some insight into leverage negotiations, former general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, host on the Fan 590 in Toronto. Gord Stellick joins us here today. Gord, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Pleasure to join you, Scott and Jamie. And thanks for making time. If you're Kevin Adams sitting in Buffalo right now, you want to move Jack Eichel, but you haven't met your price. What do the next couple of weeks look like after he reports for his physical? Oh, by the way, too, your NFL talk, some great NFL starts. So I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping the NHL season has something comparable. But to that'd be great. Get back to you. Yeah, it would be. It really would be. Uh, uh, get back to your question. Like you know, you you look recently. Okay, you had the Matt Duchesne situation in Colorado. I guess, and you had the Eric Carlson situation in Ottawa. Now, in Colorado, Joe Sackett could just take his sweet time. Uh, Duchesne came to camp and basically just said, you're going to play, and he played, he accepted it, and ultimately he pulled the trigger on a trade. He, you know, he chose uh, not to do a deal that he didn't feel gave him value back. In the case of, uh, you know, it's funny, the uh, the San Jose Sharks and Eric Carlson, and then the uh, the Ottawa Senators get that incredible high first-round pick because, San Jose never thought to lottery protected. You know, that was one that Carlson showed up at training camp right away. It, I mean, then there were mitigating circumstances off the ice. Uh, it, it was understood that it was uh, untenable. But the other point when you mentioned the, the people, it's a people business. And Kevin Adams, Jack Eichel, you know, you learn this from guys like Lou Lamorello, who've been in the business for so many years, is you really got to be careful that you don't let things get personal and you don't let it get personal, you know, cloud making a move and, and making you do something reactive uh, out of emotion rather than, you know, a well-laid plan. I mean, Eichel, there's uh, the other guys were healthy. Well, Carlson had the, the foot issue, but the other guys were healthy, you know, compared to him. So that's a situation where I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, here's a guy that's looking for, uh, like, you know, really, really a new kind of surgery. Generally, it's a player that kind of box at that, that a team pitches, you know, something that way. And this one's the other way around. So there's, it, there's also all kinds of complicated bar, uh, variables uh, in the Jack Eichel mix right now. So your point is well made. It's a business, and you can't let it get personal, except that there's somebody's livelihood at stake here, and Jack Eichel's getting compensated, whether it's through insurance or through the Sabres or through an acquiring team, and yet his career is ticking away, one day, one game at a time. Is there a point, if you're a general manager, where you say, I want to get the best deal possible, but I also have to do right by a player to a certain degree. Well, um, um, realistic, really, uh, you know, there should be a sentimental side, but also uh, if you're a general manager, your number one thing is to do what's best for the team. I mean, another example going way back about Eric Lindros, there was a guy that was completely healthy and should have been playing in the NHL when he was the first overall pick, but, you know, Quebec let him, let him not play for a year to leverage a phenomenal deal when they ultimately, ultimately traded him for the Philadelphia Flyers. And, of course, there was no history there. Eric Lindros didn't play one game. You know, Jack Eichel, um, there's more. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it's kind of – it's really unfortunate because it really symbolized a new day for Buffalo. Like, the, the, this is a real primo player that was coming that signed the maximum eight-year, second-year second deal that way. So I, I – and they, they seem to have an ownership group that has um, a sentimental side to some – Others not so much, and uh, they've always been big on Jack Eichel. I don't, I don't believe that has changed. So I, I think there's a human element that y- you should, you know, you should factor in. But really, uh, the business thing is what it's about. What what is the best thing you can do for your hockey team? What makes the most sense? What's the most you can get back? 
And on the subject of the return, Gord, or a potential return in the Jack Eichel deal, what do they need to get back to feel like, at the very least, they made the best out of a bad situation? You know, we were talking just before we got you on the line. It's not as if there's a lot of pressure on Buffalo to win this year, so maybe they don't need to add a player who can contribute right away. But in your mind, what should they be looking to get back for Jack Eichel? Well, you know, it's funny. Everyone pitches, well, here's the pieces that have to come into play. And uh, I don't look, I mean, I, I'm watching the Jays game last night and they're revisiting the Chris Archer trade from Tampa Bay and the three pieces Tampa Bay got in that one. And they're all, all playing in the majors now and quite well. So, you know, uh, if you're, cause you're talking about futures, you're talking about things that aren't sure things. And this is where it comes into play. Uh, the trust you have in your, in your pro scouting staff and amateur scouting staff about trying to find relatively speaking diamonds in the rough. So I, I don't look at the quantity thing that, you know, they're saying, well, you need, this kind of prospect, another kind of prospect, the first round pick, the second round pick, you know, what I, I whatever the formula is, um, I, I see it being in that vein, but uh, I don't know what teams are offering, but that's what you have to look at getting. You have to look at getting a mix of whatever, but also like, don't get a prospect just because he's a prospect, like get a prospect that someone in your organization or a few people, you know, really, really think, really think has some cachet. Take that one prospect over quantity wise, two prospects that you're not sure about. The other situation, Gordon, happening around the NHL right now is there's still a number of high-profile RFAs who don't have deals as training camps get going around the league this week. And obviously, Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes are a big story here in Vancouver, but certainly Brady Kachuk in Ottawa, Rasmus Dahlin in Buffalo, Kirill Kaprizov in Minnesota as well all fall into that category. You know, we hear so often deadlines make deals, right? And there's an expectation that when training camp does roll around, we'll start to see some progress. When is it that the pressure really ramps up? Is it day one of training camp or do teams now look at it and say, you know what, we can we can continue to wait here? When does that pressure really kick in for both sides? Well, you know, William Nylander is the guy that tested it. And the Toronto Maple Leafs blinked. So I think it's taken the fear factor out of anybody else that, you know, um, the team will blink. Uh, and uh, I, you know, ideally, you don't like to have an uneven season. I mean, he, he didn't have a, you know, he had kind of a, not a great two-thirds of a season. That's generally always the way when someone's missed a considerable number of games that ends up being a little bit uh, of a negative for both the team and the players. So, you do want to get it done sooner rather than later, but as a last resort, the element of brinksmanship comes into play. And William Nylander proved that he waited till the 11th hour, uh, the last day, and 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 ultimately won. So I don't know if you know guys like Hughes and Patterson, you know they're 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 looking at that and saying, okay, I got that in my back pocket. I'm I'm, I'm not afraid to do that if push comes to shove. It's you know it's funny. Uh, back in 2005, when the lockout ended and unrestricted free agency was granted at such a such a way earlier age and the the thinking was that that's when you would get the big enchilada that you'd sign the rookie rookie salaries uh that was fixed and then the second contract would be just something you know incremental and then you'd go big after seven years and this has really upset the apple cart and i'm not faulting the players because certain players are saying wait a sec i'm I'm in my fourth year and i'm an elite player so i'm not going to wait till my seventh year just because uh that's the way the contract the collective bargaining agreement is. So that's brought a whole different element and made it a lot more difficult for general managers. Yeah, it does seem like the day of the bargain value bridge contracts for these elite players might be over, as you know, everyone following the Toronto Maple Leafs knows very well, given what happened with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and William Nylander. And, Gord, the other thing that we've heard a lot recently, and looking specifically at the Canucks situation here is, you know, 
we hear Jim Benning is is in touch with the agents for Quinn Hughes and Elias Patterson. They're talking every day, but we also hear that there's no real progress being made. And I, I just find it to be an interesting situation. You know, from your perspective as a former general manager, when you're not making progress, but you are having those conversations, what is that dialogue like between a team and a general man or, or team and an agent? Yeah, I don't know. Do you need a marriage? Is this like needing a marriage counselor? Like uh, you're having marital problems, so you talk every day and you try to talk it through. I, I think I, I, I think it's it's important. I'm, I think so much now is posturing and trying to show that things aren't personal and saying we talk every day, so that's great. But you're you're not going anywhere. So you know sometimes uh, I I don't think it's wrong to uh, just regroup for a little bit and uh, focus on other things and come back with a little bit more seriousness or a little bit more time put into it and go that way that's just you know um general managers and agents talk all the time and like everyone talks with everybody because it's kind of an information gathering club that way so there's conversations always that way but to specifically talk every day hey you got any idea today well you know i don't know it's just i i i I wouldn't be as hepped on that you got to check in on it every day Gord stellick joining us here on rental and sermon with jamie dodd it's tough because they're so talented and they get lump, lumped him together in Vancouver. But if you had to rank one ahead of the other, Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes, which is more important to the future of the Vancouver Canucks? Uh, defense always. Defense always. That's just uh, – and, and I'm not saying like, – I mean, it's not like, you know, a Kale McCarr situation quite at that level. But I, I just think that that's what you look – the way the teams are building around, you know, stud defensemen. So uh, that that's that's where I'd be leaning to for uh, towards – uh, I know Hughes had, you know, somewhat not as good a season last year as the year before, but uh, I think you see the better teams really put an emphasis on D when it comes down to the big contracts. So when we look at the big five RFAs right now, two of them are in Vancouver, but there is a very finite budget that the Canucks are working with. That's not the fault of Pedersen and Hughes, but that's the reality of the situation. There's between 15 and 16 million bucks to deal with between those two contracts. There's a blank checkbook, at least theoretically, in Ottawa, but we also know how the owner operates. There's tons of cab space. Brady Kachuk's unsigned there. Buffalo Rasmus Dahlin hasn't been what people hoped he'd be in the first part of his contract, but there's no pressure on the Sabres to be great right away, and they probably don't have to give him a windfall. And then there's Kirill Kaprizov in Minnesota. We know how important he is to that team and how he's helped change our perception of the Minnesota Wild, and their cap crunch is coming pretty soon because of those buyouts. As a general manager, which is the most difficult chair to sit in in those four cities I just outlined? Vancouver, Ottawa, Buffalo, or Minnesota? Well, it's always way tougher to sit in a Canadian chair just because of shows like yours that talk uh, way more hockey than in an American market. Um, And Ottawa, it's a different animal because there's sort of a uh, more civic pride thing about having a team because they're not a, you know, a market quite the size of Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. Uh, you know, Vancouver, you have a couple of them. Uh, you have the uh, the cap issues. You've got a um, um, you got an owner that isn't exactly one of those that kind of you know slides into the background. So to me, that would be the toughest chair right now. And uh, and and, uh, and it's funny, Jimmy Benning was a guy that uh, uh, I got to know. He was 18 years old when he played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's funny. I think all these years later and uh him and his his associates uh uh they know they know i mean you saw it last year with the goaltender having to make a move you weren't thinking of making because of cap implications so it's not it's not like it's new to them 
Public pressure is a funny thing, especially when it comes to contract negotiations, because the fans desperately want the players in the lineup, but they don't want them there at all costs because fans are pretty educated about the salary cap and the implications of signing big contracts moving forward. Can you listen to the public pressure at all and where sentiment is swinging when you're trying to negotiate these deals? Well, your first comment is so bang on. I mean, I'll use Toronto as an example. It's irrelevant what a Blue Jay makes because uh, they can choose to do with their budget whatever. Uh, there's flexibility on the NBA side with luxury tax. So, I mean, you're talking about Kyle Lowry making $30 million somewhere else, but he was making about that with the Raptors. And then you got Mitch Marner getting resentment because he makes $11 million. And it's not about the $11 million cash. It's the amount it takes up against the salary cap. So, so you're right about that, that it's a, a, a perception. And, and fans are astute about that number affixed to a player. And uh, it becomes a problem. I mean, boy, Buffalo, Jeff Skinner. I mean, that starts to become a problem more and more. I, I was, you know, surprised the great, uh, great Renault Lavoie with Jonathan Drouin last night. And you, you take a look, he doesn't make ridiculous money, but this is the fifth year of his six-year deal when he, you know, came way, way, way back when. So um, there, there is the public pressure more in other markets. Uh, you're going to hear it. But again, that's something you got to tune out if you're in the management suite. The other interesting aspect with all of these RFAs who still haven't signed deals, Gord, is that I think there's a perception that certainly with the forwards, with Kaprizov, Brady Kachuk, and Elias Pettersson, there's a sense that maybe they're all waiting for somebody else to go first so that they can use those deals as frameworks or potentially springboards to get even more. Do you see, if you were in the position of, let's say, the Vancouver Canucks, I mean, do you see what Kirill Kaprizov signs for or what Brady Kachuk signs for as, as something that's going to have an impact on how you approach the Pedersen deal? Well, and, and, and that's why um, you, you, you'd love to be able to collude, but it's illegal because, yes, yeah, <laughs> those, those, those figures uh, would be brought up and thrown in your face and you get pissed off if, you know, somebody's out of sync money-wise, in your opinion, then that impacts negotiations. That number's out there, and it's a higher number than you think you think the individual deserves. So uh, it's uh, – uh, but, you know, both sides, I think there has to be an understanding. The COVID world's not fair. I mean, it's not fair to people in the service industry that really got obliterated when it happened. Uh, you know, frontline workers who have had to work ridiculous shifts and, you know, what they've had to do in the line of duty. And so it's just been a different animal. So the cap didn't go up, you know. Boo-hoo in the, in the big world. Who cares? Uh, but in the cap world, it made a difference. And last year, Lou Lamorello had that with Matthew Barzell to consider. And, you know, really on, on both sides, you, got, you have to realize that, that that ramification is still there and probably will be there for another year or two anyways. I mean, it just changed and it won't come back right away. But I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. But I can also imagine you know, if you're the representation for Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, you know, you can kind of go look at, if, if Jim Benning is making that argument, you can point to the Canucks salary cap sheet and say, well, listen, we weren't the ones who told you to go out and commit all of this money elsewhere. And whether or not you're in trouble, that, that shouldn't affect what we get for our clients at this point. Yeah, no question. And, and that's why when you, when you, whether, you know, whether it's at all over Eklund Larson or whatever you do, uh, then it's, it's especially what you do with your team, then, then you're, you're putting in place a certain structure that uh, you got to be comfortable that you feel uh, the players are fitting in where they belong, and the players feel they're fit, they're they're fitting in where they feel they belong in your own salary structure. So uh, that th- that is a good point that the rep- representatives of those players, and really representatives of any players negotiating with any AHL team, are making. You fired up for this Leaf season? Yeah, I am. You know, I am. There's uh, there's this uh, 
you know, it's funny. Vancouver has a different kind of disappointment because um, they get cut some slack and justifiably so at the end. I mean, it looked like the Canadian division was not going to be affected by COVID compared to the others. And the Canucks had a journey at the end that was uh, unparalleled amongst the 31 teams. And in Toronto's case, uh, you got, you got to get perspective back that it was really, uh, they checked all the boxes, the first 60 games, that being the 56 regular season games and four playoff games uh, and didn't in the last three. And that's what they didn't do against Columbus the previous year. So you can't ignore that and wipe that away that the most important games of the season, not only did you, not win, but really didn't show up. I mean, I, that's a little bit, that's, well, not a lot baffling, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to fans in the building. I'm looking, you know, the Canadian division was kind of a nice novelty at the start, but I'm looking forward in Toronto's case to take it on the Tampa Bay Lightning and, you know, the Boston Bruins and the improved Florida Panthers and the Montreal Canadiens and, and all that stuff. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to what a, I think is, is a stride towards some kind of normalcy as well. Yeah, just that cupcake division that they roll back into. <laughs> no, no, it was, you know, and hey, who would have thought Montreal of all the bloody teams, right? One of them was going to get their way to the final four and they made it to the final two. So, you know, not a lot of people predicted that. So good on them. Gord, thanks for your time today. I look forward to doing this again soon. Be well and we'll talk hockey soon. Sounds good. Thanks very much. That is Gord Stellick from the Fan 590, former general manager as well. And I understand his point, Jamie, and it's a good one. Hey, you can't listen to the masses out there, but I do wonder how the psychology of the market plays into things because you got an owner to deal with as well. And that owner is going to functions where people are asking him about his hockey team. And that owner feels the pressure when the players aren't in the lineup. And that owner knows that also there's a, a great faction of fans in today's day and age that go, hey, you can't give every last dollar here. And they start pointing the fingers at the players. And so you wonder how loud the noise is on either side of it, how that actually affects the directive that the club gives moving forward. And in this season in particular, when one of the big storylines for every team, but especially I think the Canadian teams who all have such rabid fan bases is, man, we finally get to have fans back in the building, right? And now the Canucks are in a little bit of an advantageous position here because they start on the road, so they don't actually come back to play at home until October 26th. But, you know, it, let's say if they did open at home this year, right, and you're getting so excited, it's going to be the first game back with fans, it's going to be incredible, I mean, you can imagine how immense the pressure would be to get your business done and get your star players in the lineup in that situation, right? It would just fall so flat. It would just be such a talking point if they weren't there. As I said, they've got a little bit of a window before it's an actual home game and they're in that situation. But even just the pressure to have those guys in the lineup for game one, despite the fact that it's on the road, is going to be immense. Flames played a home game last night, sort of. It was that rookie game against the Edmonton Oilers. They won it 4-1. That'll be a talking point next on Hockey Central 960. We will turn you over to that on the eastern side of the Rockies. And there's a home game under a lot of scrutiny right now for the Vancouver Canucks. We will tell you why right after this on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Had someone text in there. Lack said, Houston's call of the Dragon Slayer goal is underrated. Also, he got to say, the Vancouver Canucks are going to the Stanley Cup final, just like the legend did in 94. Thanks for the text. You can get in on the conversation, 650-650. That's your Dunbar Lumber text message inbox on a day in which Jim Houston's retirement has become official. There were rumors out there that he wouldn't re be returning to the booth for Hockey Night in Canada. They were confirmed today, 42 years, an incredible 42 years in this business with what he's been able to see, what he's been able to call, and the impact that he's had on hockey fans around this country. 
Yeah, as you said, an incredible 42 years in the business, and he gets to go out, you know, at the top of his game, on top, having accomplished everything he set out to do. We played just a couple of the calls there, but there's so many good ones that we could play. We could really spend the next hour just playing fantastic Jim Houston calls if we wanted to. Yeah, we certainly could. And if you want to comment on Jim Houston, the impact that he had for you, a memorable call along the way, your perception of him among the greatest of all time to do it in this country, you are welcome to do that at 650-650. We'll take those texts, and we will bring them into our conversation throughout the course of this show. It's also the eve of training camp. There are also two pretty high-profile players that remain unsigned. That has been the same drum being beaten for a long time. If there's new information, we will get it to you, but at this point in time, there's no reason to think that's going to change in the next 24 hours. Now, Jamie, you know where the Canucks training camp has taken place this year, do you not? I sure do. It's in Abbotsford. It sure is. They're going to report to Rogers tomorrow, Rogers Arena. They're going to go through their medicals. They're going to go through the testing. You're going to hear the Canucks tomorrow at the podium when they go through their media availability. You're going to hear Jim Benning on this show tomorrow. It's going to be very Canuck-heavy on content on your home of Canucks Hockey, Sportsnet 650. You're going to get that as it happens tomorrow. Then they're going to go out to Abbotsford, and they're going to have three days of training camp. They're going to have scrimmages. They've got a game Sunday night in Spokane against the Seattle Crack, and then they've got a game back in Abbotsford Monday night against the Calgary Flames. Jamie, how many restaurants have you been out to since the pandemic hit, or maybe in the last few months since things started to reopen? Oh, yeah, quite a few. Especially, I mean, we had so much patio weather in the season, so that made it a lot easier. So, yes, that's been a fairly regular occurrence. Okay. And have you looked at any vacation spots in coming months? And things have changed with the Delta variant and where you might be able to go, where you're willing to go. Have you looked at the possibility of flying anywhere and having a vacation? I have not. Okay. But you probably know people who have and renting accommodation. And one of the things you'll notice is that prices have increased to a certain degree, depending Mm -hmm. on what you're talking about. So you've had a lot of people who haven't been able to go anywhere. I'll use Hawaii as an example. There's probably some of our listeners out there that thought, man, I'd love to get away. And winter's going to be coming, and why don't I get ahead of it? And they look like, man, flights are a little pricier than, than I remember, or accommodation's a little pricier than I remember. This is an effect you're going to see because the sellers in this case, they know that there's this pent-up demand. So they're going to test the market. Restaurants, we know how hard those businesses were hit, and I think most people, when they go to restaurants right now, Jamie, are accepting of the fact that a dish they might have gotten for 17 bucks before, maybe it cost 20 or 21 bucks. Go, okay, I get that. You've had to go through a lot of stuff. You've had to put different procedures in place to help your staff out to keep you protected. There's plexiglass in some place. Okay, I get that. And there's this threshold that you go, I'm willing to accept that. And then there's a threshold where you go, okay, I can't do that. Like, it doesn't work for me if that's the price you're going to charge. Yes, and you also understand, right, with restaurants, you know, reduced capacity is an issue as well. So there's a lot going into it. So that's where Monday night's game comes in. And we're going to get a pretty test case scenario unfold in front of us here. Monday's game is in Abbotsford. That's the game that the Canucks will play there this year. They're going to get to see Canucks prospects with the AHL team. And it should be a pretty good team based on what the Canucks did with their roster. Should be a pretty good team in Abbotsford this year, but it's not the Canucks. So this is an opportunity to see the Canucks and the Flames, and it's preseason hockey. The ticket prices just went up today, and we're going to find out 
how much people want to go. I've seen the complaining online, and I understand it, Jamie, because it's a preseason game. Tickets, including taxes, start at $73, and they cap out at just over $105. That's your pricing range for a preseason game this coming Monday in Abbotsford. I've heard a lot of people say, what are you kidding me? You're asking that much for that game? Some of that is a reflection of the fact that it's a 50% capacity within the building, and I imagine there's an operating cost from a business standpoint that you'd like to get over if you're hosting that game. But there are a lot of people saying, hold on a second here. Throw us a bone. We haven't been able to go to games for a really long time. It's the only game that you have in Abbotsford. I understand why the fan reaction has been what it's been over the last couple of hours. It's a big ask for a preseason game. Right. Like, especially early in the preseason, we know what those games look like. Now, maybe because it's in Abbotsford, they'll try to ice a lineup with, you know, more of the regulars in it for that one. But man, that is a lot to pay for the privilege of going to watch a preseason NHL hockey game. Not typically the most dramatic, entertaining affairs. And how many people are going to be in the lineup? And two of the headliners almost assuredly won't be. I can't tell you for certain that Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson won't sign before Monday or won't be here tomorrow. I can't tell you that for certain. But if that doesn't happen in the next couple of days, you're looking at a lineup that doesn't include those two. Well, the Canucks have other good players, and there's Bo Horvat, and it'd be nice to have a look at Connor Garland on Monday night live and in the flesh, and maybe they hold... Thatcher Demko for some time in that game, and he doesn't make the trip down to Spokane. There are some regulars and some prominent players that we can point to, but it's also not going to be the Canucks, and chances are it's not going to be the Calgary Flames. It'll be a split squad of some variety that they send out to Abbotsford as well, to the former home of their AHL affiliate. I can understand why people are balking at this, and as I said, we're going to find out. We're going to find out because I've seen people online saying, listen, Canucks fans will pay that. They won't blink an eye. It's their chance to go see a hockey game again. And if you live in Abbotsford, you're going to go no matter what. And I've seen others say, nope, no chance, not getting my money. I say it all the time, Jamie, you vote with your wallet. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I get the ex, the argument for, oh, well, there's so many big Canucks fans. Somebody will pay it. But I don't know. Really? Like, the, the, if you're in Abbotsford and you're a big Canucks fan, you're a big hockey fan, I mean, you've got the Abbotsford Canucks rolling out not that long from now, right? So are you really feeling the pressure to go to this one early preseason game? If those are the prices they're asking you to pay, you're right. Everyone has a chance to vote with their wallets. This is, I think, to a certain degree, a calculated risk, maybe trying to gauge where the market is at, how much demand is really there by the Canucks. But, yeah, it would not surprise me if a lot of those tickets go unsold at, that, at those prices. Listen, if I'm a fan living in the Fraser Valley, that's my reaction when I see this today. My reaction is, can you throw us a bone here, guys? Can you throw us a bone? Like, this is the first game back. It's the only one we're getting here this year. We're accepting of the fact that it's not going to be your full roster, but this hasn't been an easy time for any of us. Make this a little easier for me and my family to go to. And, hey, I I know that prices are supposed to be non-discriminant or indiscriminate, Jamie, that, hey, the price is whatever somebody's willing to pay. Yes. But, look, you you and I are coming at this from a place of of family. I got four people in my family. You can do the math. There's a lot of people living in the Valley that feel the same way, and all of a sudden that price adds up, and you're not getting a premium product as far as the lineup that's going to be out there. We'll see. We'll see how many people are at that game. Yes, we will. And, you know, there's two, as you know, though, those numbers are different, right? People who end up at the game and people who actually bought 
full price tickets because you know they're going to do their best late if there's not a lot of tickets sold for that game to get people in the building one way or another but yeah i just it's a tough tough sell for me right like it's a really tough sell it's not you can't even really say that you know oh hey this is such a great opportunity for people that normally wouldn't get to go because the prices i mean well if, if you're gonna pay that much to go to a preseason game just pay a little bit extra and try to go to a regular season game at some point Rob in Abbotsford says, crazy, everything is going to be expensive. Imagine Dragon's good seats, 195 bucks. Two years ago, those would have been 100 COVID is killing us. Well, only if you're willing to pay, Rob, and that's where you get to choose to vote with your wallet. I have this one coming in from Greg. I voted with my wallet for years now. Pro sports has gone way, way too expensive. I'd rather save the money and watch it on TV at home. I don't watch pro sports live anymore unless it's free, which we know it's not, Greg. You pay your bill, so it's not free, but I understand the point that you're making. Donkey the Roofer says, yeah, punish the fans more by jacking up your price. I don't want to hear about operating costs and all that BS. The Canucks are fine. The Aquilinis are fine. They didn't lose any effing money. They just didn't make the buckets of cash. They usually do. Give the fans a bone here for crying out loud. Open your wallet for us instead of us opening it for you. Buck up. As I said, we're going to find out Monday night. Yeah, like, I don't know offhand what the capacity of the Abbotsford Event Center is, but 50% of that, do they get to that number or not at these prices? Well, and if and if they don't, it's not going to be a good look. That's a really tough look because the other thing here is it's not as if the Canucks are exactly drowning in goodwill with the fans and the marketplace in Vancouver right now, right? Like there's been a lot of questions and a lot of criticism and a lot of disappointment and frustration with this team and by taking this tack you're taking you're turning something that could have been really celebratory right and hey yeah it's just a preseason game but finally fans in the lower mainland in the Fraser Valley they get to come out and watch their team play and what a cool moment that's going to be you're transforming it into something else you're transforming it as another opportunity and another instance where fans are going to look at this and say come on are you kidding me it's it's just tough to see the logic in again what you're you're taking something that could have been a really feel good moment and could have been something to kind of start building that foundation of goodwill again with the fans and and it's a missed opportunity well you know i'm a fan of long game like long game in these scenarios i have been an advocate for a very long time like i am personally of the belief that the canucks the lions the whitecaps if you're playing a preseason game if it is it with all at all within your power Take those to smaller communities. I know you don't get as many people in the building, but if the Canucks or the Lions are going to be BC's teams, or the Whitecaps for that matter, take it somewhere where they generally don't get that opportunity. Take it to Kelowna. Take it to Kamloops. I know it's a smaller rink, and just try to cover it. Like, just try to break, do the yeah. best you can to break even. I know it's an extended cost, but you're going to get that back in the loyalty that you create from your customers. I am a big fan of long game. I like what the Kraken are doing, moving their team around Washington State. And part of it has to do with their arena, but I hope that's an initiative that continues. You've heard me talk about this with the Seattle Seahawks. Go play a game in Pullman, Washington for your preseason. Instead of playing it at home in front of your season ticket holders the whole time, yeah, they'll probably appreciate the fact that they don't have to pay extra money for preseason games as well and that they just have to pay for the eight or now nine regular season home games on their docket i've been a big advocate of that for a long time this comment comes in and i think it's fair to point this out coach craig sends this tweet i prefer the five dollars and fifty cents to watch training camp 
So on yes. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that's your option. It's up to 50% capacity at the Abbotsford Event Center, and you're not going to see an NHL opponent. And who knows how much scrimmaging you're going to see over those three days. But as far as an entry point goes, 550 with the proceeds going to the Canucks for Kids Fund and benefiting charities, that's a pretty easy sell. Yes, and I think that, at yeah, okay, it's just training camp. They're just going to be scrimmaging out there, doing drills, whatever. It's not as exciting as even a preseason game. But at that price point, if I had to choose one, I know which one I'm going to. And it's not paying 70 bucks to get in the gate for a preseason game. This is a good text, I think, from Alex and Burnaby. He says, if this were the peak Sedin Luongo era, enough fans would pay those prices in a heartbeat to watch these preseason games. Whoever set these ticket prices is still stuck in 2010. I, I Again, I think there's something to that. Just where this team is with the fan base, with the marketplace right now, is not a place where you could justify charging this much for people to go to a preseason game. Alex is exactly right. If this was a dominant team and it was that the actual the the absolute height of their popularity, people would look at it and say, "Man, it's hard just to get regular season tickets. If I have to pay a little bit extra, but I get to go watch this team that I'm a huge fan of, fine, I'll do it." That's not where this team is right now, not at all. Matt and Ladner says, "Telling capitalists not to be capitalists is a tough one. How do you think they got rich?" No one said that you can't, whether you're any of these teams, set your price wherever you want. You can. The question is, what do you need to get out of it? What's the best thing that can happen coming out of this game? It's 50% capacity. Man, I wish we could have gotten tickets to that. Are you going to achieve that? And if you're not, but eh, whatever, we get to 42% capacity, but we made enough money anyway that it covers the operating costs of the event. And that's really what we are looking to do. Is that actually the best benefit that you can get out of it? Yes. That's, that's the issue here, right? Of course they're willing to set, they could charge a thousand dollars per ticket if they wanted to, if they thought they could get that, they would be well within their rights to do that. But I think the larger question is, is this actually the best thing for the franchise, right? From a business perspective, but also just building that goodwill and building that positive feeling with the fans. This one comes in. Uh, where was it? Unfortunately, there will be enough people who pay that price. It will embolden management to keep the prices high, a furthering decline of the middle class. That's the other scenario that unfolds here, that yes. the the general populace gripes about it, but there are enough people who say, yeah, okay, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I've got enough disposable income. I'm happy to buck up for a couple of seats or four seats, whatever it is, because I don't have to drive all the way into Vancouver for a game. This is right here in my backyard. I'll take advantage of that, no problem. And if that happens and ticket sales aren't even a problem, then there's nothing really to be upset about here. I mean, you're upset if you can't go to the game, but from a sales standpoint, you've done the right thing. Yeah, and maybe that, hey, they're they're entitled to take their shot here, right? And, you know, again, maybe there's an element here of trying to gauge, okay, with this pent-up demand to go to a live sporting event, what what can we charge? What will people pay to go to a hockey game, even if it's only a preseason game, right? Like, this might be kind of a fact-finding thing for the Canucks as well. We don't know entirely, but there is a possibility it pays off for them. There is a possibility that they sell out, they move all of those tickets, even at that price. I wouldn't bet on it right now, just seeing the reaction and just doing the calculation in my own head. Is that something I would be willing to do for a preseason game? But you never know. It's possible that they that ends up being, hey, yeah, people bought those tickets and we feel great about the decision. 
Wayne in East Abbey says, I'd rather see an Abbotsford Canucks preseason game. You know, those players will be giving it 100%. NHL preseason games for 100 bucks. Come on, man. That's part of the argument here as well, the product that you're actually going to see. This is an opening night, and I'm sure that the first opportunity to see Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland and those players introducing themselves to the fan base in BC for the first time – those guys are going to try. It's not as though they're going to go out there and completely go through the motions. They want to get off on the right foot as well, and, and they want to curry some favor with their brand-new fan base. But I also understand Wayne in East Abbey's point. They also don't want to get hurt. They're not yep. going to go smash guys in the corners. Part of the exercise is getting your legs under you, getting your timing back with your passes, making sure you're putting it on the tape. It's not to go out there and, and play like this game means something the way it does when it's one of 82. And that's the hard thing about it being in Abbotsford because, again, like Abbotsford's about to have a lot more access to professional hockey than they, than they have in a long time, right, since the Heat were there. So it's not as if if you live in Abbotsford, you say, man, this is my only chance to go see a high-level hockey game that I'll get for a long time. Yeah, I get it's different. It's the NHL versus the AHL, but – this is the NHL preseason, early NHL preseason. It's not going to be that different, actually, in terms of the level play that you get from what you're going to get in a regular season AHL game. Give me a break, says this texter. They know there's a large market, large enough market, I should say, that tickets will always sell. It's the fact that they will outprice a large amount of people, and they are taking advantage of us once again. That's the risk that is being run. I disagree with the assertion tickets will always sell we have seen this in recent years not in the last couple obviously couldn't go to a game but the team that went to the bubble people were excited about that team and fans started to come back the years that preceded that we didn't see a full building in vancouver all the time jamie nope nope it's absolutely true that it is not a guaranteed sellout anymore for the canucks right you cannot just charge whatever you want and expect to sell every single ticket available doesn't work like that anymore Guys, think about it. They're only going half capacity. There are some damn fans who will pay full poll for preseason, regular season. Mark my words. That's from Logan the Stripper. Don't know if there's enough bills tucked in there to, to make those prices work for you. I have no idea what the economy looks like in, in that industry right now, <laughs> Logan. But as I said, we'll find out. Like, we'll find out. These are either going to be takes that were somewhat inflammatory six days before the game or they're going to be some that are well-founded when we find out what the number looks like on Tuesday. Yeah, it, again, it's just I understand the argument that, hey, the Canucks are so popular, people will pay for it. But, I, I again, I go back to the texter earlier who said, look, if this is 2010, 2011, 2012, yeah, okay, go go nuts and charge this kind of charge these kind of prices for a preseason game. I just don't know if the team has the pull right now to convince cans to pony up, that fans to pony up that kind of cash. Mossy and Langley, interesting theory. See if there's any credence to it among our listeners. Me and two buddies, says Mossy, got our ice packs. We chose pack D simply because it did not have a preseason game in it. I wonder if that's why preseason games are so expensive, because those who selected ice packs A, B, or C with a preseason game in, they're paying good money for it. Either way, in Mossy's opinion, way too expensive. I think it's a joke, insulting to even charge that. And again, you can charge whatever you want. If there's enough people to pay it, and if not, then you have to readjust. Sports entities in general are loath to do that. Like if you work in retail and nothing in your store is selling, at some point you go, okay, we got to discount this stuff because yes. we got more inventory coming. We have to have a sale. Sports franchises take a very long time to do that regu relative to the regular market because they don't want to be seen as 
as devaluing their product as as some sort of public admission that our product isn't quite what we thought it was and so if if we mark our tickets lower do people think that it's just not as good as it was before but here's the thing it's a preseason game so it's not as good as a normal game so people would understand if you charge significantly lesser amount and you're exactly right with the logic as you laid it out there scotty and there's also you know i think with a regular event like a hockey game there's okay, if we start lowering prices because tickets aren't selling, then we give people the signal that that's going to happen in the future as well. And people get it in their heads. Okay, you know, I'll hold off. Maybe they'll drop those ticket prices and and you eventually, you you, ha- you do have problems selling those tickets. So I understand that, but it's we're not talking about a regular season game. I would completely understand if they were charging a premium for the first regular season games back at Rogers Arena. It's just tough to wrap my head around it for a preseason game of all things. Tax comes in. I'm not spending a third of my rent to go to one game. Well, if we go with the low price point, that's about two twenty five a month. Whew, that's good rent. Man, yes. if you can get rent for two twenty five a month, like either you're living in a closet somewhere or you found the best deal ever. I understand. In Vancouver the point. of all places. That's not bad. Maybe it's a little I, I do further think, out than that. Maybe it's a little I further do think out that, than that. Uh, yeah, probably. I do think that texture was following up on an earlier text who said, you know, it used to be a family could go to a game for 70 bucks. Now, you know, depending on how many people you're taking, what you're buying, you could run up into the hundreds, you know, $300, $400. So I, I think maybe he's using the $400 as a third of his rent, <laughs> which which makes more sense in the lower mainland. Well, and there's one more follow-up. And I think this is probably where a lot of people who are balking at the price are coming from. It's how about go cheap? Maybe there'll be more families coming to your games and you grow your fan base for future generations. Crazy, I know, but I'm part of a generation that didn't go to Canucks games because of the prices. It is one game and this story will pass, but that is a lot of the reaction that you're seeing today as these ticket prices come out for the first home preseason game, the only one that's going to occur in Abbotsford. It's this Monday night, second game of the preseason for the Vancouver Canucks. It's Scott Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd, who is in for Karen Sermon. You can't really blame this guy for saying it. I don't know if it stings a year later or not, but we'll find out because we'll play you his comment next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. You wouldn't have bet on it, Greg, but almost. Like, that was close, buddy. (laughs) That was close. Really close because this reminds me of some really good times. You know whose song? You know who I associate that song with most of all, guys? Barry McDonald. That song comes on. That man is out of his chair. He is giving her on the dance floor. He loves that song. Remember him in Vegas, grooving to that, having a good time. He's a beauty. He's a beauty. Shout out to BMAC if he's listening out there today. Well done, Scotty, Greg. You almost got my, me. I had to check. I had to check to make my, my to make sure my mic was off as well because I was definitely <laughs> getting in on it there. You were. I, I was wondering. I was wondering if we were going to get it today. I'm glad that we got it before the end of the show. I mean, come on. What a fantastic song. What a song. Yeah. First time it's, it's been beautiful. played today. I'm it's beautiful. I'm, I'm shocked. I saw the list of the songs we played today. It's not on it. It's the first time. Crazy. Crazy. Well, it occurred before Dom was born, so there's no chance that he would play it. No, music didn't exist before then. It's like going on an old Taylor rant from back. It's a great song. It is a good song. Well done by you, Greg. Yep, you almost got me. And it's a good thing that we're not on FaceTime or we don't do a live stream because I was at least out of my chair. I can say yes. that. Maybe there, maybe there was some lip syncing happening. I didn't throw any audio behind it, but there was some lip syncing going on. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was singing. I was doing. I was not out of my chair, but getting the head nod going for sure. Did I almost get you singing, Scotty? Close. Wow, really I would not close. have picked that song to be the one. I know. That's what I said. 
Almost, Greg, but not quite. And you wouldn't have had that on your radar as one that you were going to get me with. But it's a sing-along, that one. It's that a good should one. get you thinking, Balak, about other songs in that genre that you might not immediately associate with Scotty singing, but that, that might be kind of under-the-radar picks to get it to happen. Let's do some research after the show. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yes. Church, yes. Yeah, you guys get going. Internet sleuths, detectives, maybe you can make it happen. Church of Pedersen's still willing to donate some money. <laughs> if you guys catch me singing on air on any day, going to the Canuck Autism Network, I believe that's where the money would be going. Scott Rentoul, Jamie Dodd, Greg Ballack, as you heard back at Mission Control. Raja Shergill doing a fine job of producing this program today. Jamie, a few things to get into this final segment, including some training camp tidbits, if you will, though I think that's trademarked at our station. I'm not sure I can actually use that. So here's one. Alex Galchenyuk not going back to the Toronto Maple Leafs. They made him an offer. He thought, I can do better. He's officially accepted a PTO with the Arizona Coyotes. Interesting personal choice by him. It is. What a career, man, that that is developed Ooh. for Alex Galchenyuk. Just the amount of moves and different stops on his itinerary all of a sudden. And people forget, you, you think of him as kind of the suitcase guy. He played a long stretch at the beginning of his career in Montreal. But since then, it has just been one team after another for Alex Galchenyuk. One of those prior stops was Arizona. So, you know, maybe he likes the market, likes the, the, the situation there enough to go back. You can also understand it. I mean, if you're just interested in playing time, you look at the Maple Leaf situation, you look at the Arizona Coyote situation, that roster is thin in Arizona. So there's a pretty clear path to significant playing time, which wouldn't exist for him in Toronto. Fair to say that the counting stats don't do his impact in Toronto last year justice. 26 games, four goals, eight assists for just 12 points. It felt like he was more impactful than that, didn't it? And the reaction I've seen from you know people who follow the Leafs, but also just Leafs fans online has been, and I don't even mean with the news that he's going to Arizona, but just in general with Galchenyuk, the, the, the conversation that I've seen has kind of been, why aren't we bringing this guy back? Like, Why isn't this deal already done he they thought he was a really nice fit there had four points in the playoffs in six games as well so he showed up in the biggest time not enough players did obviously in the back half of that series a little bit surprising on the part of Alex Galchenyuk and maybe it's just that Kachina jersey that white Kachina logo jersey down in he said he liked the situation and he liked the organization I'm not sure how much there is to like down there right now maybe it was the opportunity to play with Louis Erickson I don't know maybe it was that yes that's that's what he was jumping at for sure. So that's one of the news and notes items out of the NHL and training camp today. Different situation in Columbus. Zach Ronaldo would have elected to be in training camp with the Columbus Blue Jackets. They're not giving him that opportunity. Jamie, they are telling Zach Ronaldo, stay away, thank you very much. John Davidson, president of hockey operations, said Zach Ronaldo not vaccinated, therefore is not welcome at camp. He is allowed to go to AHL camp with the Monsters later this month. That one, this is a fascinating one, really, because I, I think back to what we saw play out in the NFL at, at cut day, Scotty Wright, when Urban Meyer came out and basically said, not that we cut players because they were unvaccinated, but that it was a consideration when you were deciding on the final roster spots. And then, you know, because the PA got upset about that, he kind of had to come out and walk it back. And, well, no, that's not really what I meant. But, I mean, I think we also all look at that situation and say, no, that pretty much is what you meant, and it makes a lot of sense why you would do that. This is 
so direct, so explicit. They're saying, nope, you're, we're, we're just not bringing you to camp because you are unvaccinated. And it's really interesting because we all know the NHL hasn't mandated it, right? They, they did not agree on that with the Players Association. It is not mandatory for NHL players to get the vaccine. But I, I don't know... I don't know that it necessarily follows then that teams can't make this kind of decision, right? Yeah, they're not mandating it, but I think teams are still allowed to take it into account when they're making these kinds of decisions. So does the Players Association step in, or is that not something they can step in on? Is it, well, we're fulfilling the terms of his contract, we're paying him, we're not severing ties from him contractually, and if we choose to assign him there for whatever reason— That's why we choose to assign him there. We'll see if the PA has any response to this whatsoever. Further comments from John Davidson. When you read the amount of players, the percentage that have been vaccinated, it's a big, big number. There's very few who aren't, and that's their own personal choice, said Davidson. I'm not going to sit here and tell them what to do, even though I'd like to see the whole world get vaccinated. My daughter's a doctor, said Davidson. She believes in this, and I believe in her because she's a whole lot smarter than I am. I'd like to see the whole world get vaccinated. We have a responsibility of as leaders of the organization. We want our people vaccinated. We want them wearing masks as much as possible. Yarmo Kekalainen has also spoken on the matter, has this quote. And I'm reading this off Aaron Portsline's timeline. He writes for The Athletic, has covered the Blue Jackets for a long time. The ball is in his court right now, says Kekalainen. We do everything as a team. That's a requirement of being a Blue Jacket. We're going with the group we have here, which is 100% vaccinated. We'll see how it develops. And this gets back to a couple things that you and I have talked about a lot, right, in regards to this issue. One, it's a competitive advantage, right? It is a competitive advantage to have a wholly vaccinated team. And I think that's a big driver behind the numbers we're seeing that John Davidson was referencing in that statement around the league. The other aspect is the whole idea of hockey culture, right? And that's what Yarmo Kekalainen is getting at there. We this we are a team. We do everything together. We need everyone pulling in the right direction. And when the numbers are so extreme in one direction, yeah, the players on the other side, it's going the perception is going to be that you're not pulling in the same direction that you're not being a good team player. So again, this all depends on whether the PA can do anything or chooses to do anything in this situation and it'll also be interesting to see what Zach Ronaldo does we're not talking about a first year player we're talking a guy who's played for a number of years I'm not sure if this is like using the term he'll he's willing to die and is probably the wrong one I just can't come up with something but just how convicted he is in his stance on this Jamie we've seen this psychology in our own society where there are a lot of people who have said nope not for me I want to see more testing. I don't like this. I'm choosing not to do it. And then as consequences have ramped up, some of those people have converted. I'll use Alberta as an example. Alberta said, all right, we'll give you 100 bucks now. Like, we don't have enough people vaccinated. Come get vaccinated. We'll give you 100 bucks. It was barely an uptick in that province. Like, barely. As soon as they last week said, all right, we screwed up. We're going to a vaccine passport. That's what we have to do. We're taking drastic measures right now. The uptick in first doses in Alberta went way higher than it did with offering a $100 incentive. Yes, that is one uh, situation where, you know, the carrot turned out to be less effective than the stick, right? Giving the incentive, oh, not didn't really move the needle that much. But when it actually came, okay, your your uh, your day-to-day life might be affected in some way. Then all of a sudden you see the change in behavior. And the interesting thing here is my understanding is Zach Ronaldo is on a two-way deal. 
right, with the Columbus Blue Jackets, which, which means his salary decreases significantly when he's in the AHL. I believe he'd be making seven hundred and fifty thousand a year in the in the NHL and only three hundred thousand in the AHL. That is a big, big hit to your wallet. And as you said, it's going to be. Really fascinating to see how he chooses to handle this. If it's a deal breaker for him or if he says, yeah, you know what? I'm willing to take that hit in salary because I'm not doing that. A little closer to home, the Vancouver Canucks will take a hit in training camp. They're hoping they don't for the regular season. Good reporting by Thomas Drance in The Athletic, who let us know that Tyler Mott's not going to be ready for camp. He's not going to be a part of this. They are hopeful that Tyler Mott's going to be ready to go for the beginning of the regular season. We'll monitor it. What's interesting about this story is that Tyler Mott had successful, from everything we can tell, off-season surgery. We don't quite know for what, yes. and it's one that was never announced, which is which is pretty rare in today's day and age. Usually when players have some type of surgery, you hear about it somewhere, somehow. Quite often, in fact, there's a press release, but not in this case. Yeah, that is odd. As you said, in this day and age in the NHL to have kind of no clue really what the injury is, when the surgery was done, all of that, you know, potential recovery time. It's odd. It's definitely odd. I'm not saying there's anything untoward about it. As you said, the reporting from Thomas Drance was really, really good on this topic, but it's definitely strange. And I think from, you know, a training camp perspective, pretty much everyone who covers the team has looked at the forward group and said, if you're, ta- if you're talking about who's going to be on the ice on opening night, you know, assuming Elias Pettersson is signed and assuming everyone is healthy, there's probably one spot up for grabs, right? Because you have Tyler Mott and Brandon Sutter penciled in on that fourth line, and it's just a question of who's skating alongside of them. This opens up another spot, and there's no shortage of potential candidates to fill that spot. We all saw what the Canucks did signing, you know, guys who could play in the AHL credibly or, or uh, get called up to serve on an NHL roster if need be. So a lot of those players now, it might not be for a long time, depending on what happens with Tyler Mott. He still could be healthy for opening night, but it might just open the door a little bit for another one of those guys to make the team. Could they be down to one Tyler for opening night? <laughs> it wasn't that what long ago. There, well, they had like it wasn't that long ago. There were four Tylers if you include Tyler Madden as a prospect. Now, I guess that's technically not true because they swapped one Tyler for another in that deal. Yes, there yes. were a lot of they Tylers. Had, they kept their Tyler levels equal in that deal. That was my segue into Tyler Toffoli. The latest 31 Thoughts, soon to be 32 Thoughts, the podcast came out last night. Tyler Toffoli was on it. And, Jamie, this is going to strike you as crazy, but they actually asked Tyler Toffoli during their conversation about torching his old team last year, lighting up the Vancouver Canucks. Here's what he had to say. It was funny because, obviously, that was a big topic when I was scoring all the goals, right? and. It was just one of those things where I, I don't know, like for me, when when I get hot, it's you get hot. I mean, besides, you know, like Ovechkin and whatever, he scores fifty goals in his sleep a year. For me, it's just finding the rhythm, being confident, and I hadn't scored until I went to Vancouver. I think it was like the fourth game of the year, and it was it wasn't like gripping my stick too tight. I was mm. like, damn, am I am I going to score? Or am I like <laughs> am I bust right now? You know what I mean? And new team, exactly, new teammates, exactly. And I scored the first goal. I was like, okay. And I scored the second. And I scored the third. And it was just like all the boys on the bench, they're just laughing. And <laughs> and then, of, of course, the media started going, you know, the revenge yeah. tour. And I was just the whole time I was laughing. And I'm still really good buddies with some of the guys on the team. So it's like, it was, just like, it was awkward. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
facts are facts. He went John Wick on the Vancouver Canucks <laughs> last season, man. He did. He, it was tough to watch at points. Like, really, you just you just had to feel for the Canucks players on the other side, just getting absolutely like annihilated by your former teammate, night in, night out. Eight goals in eight games. Wasn't that what it was? And he didn't play the one. I believe against so, Vancouver. Yeah. yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, no, that's not bad. You keep that pace up. You're doing pretty well. I think Canucks fans won't be. They'll now be able to move on, especially because Toffoli will only see them a couple of times a year. There will still be those pangs of regret. How did they not come to a deal with them? Boy, they screwed that up. But it's been a year now. He was in their face, destroying them personally all last season. He won't be able to do it on a regular basis. There's been so much change with this roster. This There will be other topics to focus on that Tyler Toffoli – I'm not saying it'll go away completely for some fans, but it'll be a fairly distant memory pretty quickly. It will. I will say, though, it's still fair to have issues with how that whole thing went down. Like, I know there's been a lot of points over the last, I mean, really, in the whole tenure, but especially in the last two years where people have questions about, you know, how free agents were dealt with, which contracts got signed when. The Toffoli one is still one that really sticks out as a missed opportunity for the Canucks. You're right. It's going to be feel like ancient history. They're only going to play a couple times this year. But I also very much understand why it still gets to Canucks fans. Because it was a missed opportunity. Someone pointed out Grayovac. I forgot about Tyler Grayovac. Yeah, they were collecting Tylers at one point. <laughs> they really were. More Tylers than you. I think that was the slogan. Forget about team like He's that. More Tylers than strategic, you. Uh, their strategic Tyler reserve was at an all-time high, and it's, it's dangerously low right now with, with Tyler Mott on the shelf. Someone texting in on the Zach Ronaldo issue. It makes absolutely no sense to force a vaccine, especially on someone's livelihood. To be clear, as before I continue with this text, Jamie, John Davidson said, no, he can choose to do what he wants. It's a choice, but there are consequences, is basically what John Davidson said. The NHL is an extremely controlled environment. Why would they just not do testing like last year for those players not getting vaccinated? It worked last year. Why would it be different now? We don't know all the reasons people don't vaccinate. It should be honored, not disciplined. Sad, sad state of things. I will echo what Davidson said off the top of his comments. You you have a choice. And no one is saying there's no choice here. It's saying that there are consequences. And to the it worked last year, you don't have to look past the Vancouver Canucks to find out that just testing every day didn't work last year. Like it's not yeah, as simple exactly. as that. And yeah. like they had a 25-day interruption in their schedule because of this. Vaccines weren't as prevalent as they are right now. And to be very clear, you, I, any of us who are doubly vaccinated can still get COVID. That said, we're at lesser risk. And it's about doing everything in your power to protect yourself and those around you. That's my opinion. That's the opinion of the National Hockey League from a business standpoint. They are going to ask their members to do everything possible to prevent further business interruptions. You know, and just to the point of it interrupting potentially Zach Ronaldo's livelihood, well, he's still getting the chance to play professional hockey, first of all. And, I mean, he signed a two-way deal. He knew that there was a possibility he was going to be end, end up playing in the AHL, right? That's not a new situation for Zach Ronaldo. But, you know, I'll also say not everybody's entitled to a spot in the NHL. Those are extremely, extremely competitive, and people lose their jobs in the NHL for all kinds of different reasons, right? And I, I don't know how you 
make a rule saying that NHL teams can't take vaccination status into account, right? Even if you say they can't officially announce that's what they're doing, teams are inevitably going to take this kind of thing into consideration. So, you know, he's not being denied his livelihood. He's still got a chance to play professional hockey. It's just not at the highest level, but that happens. That happens to players for all sorts of different reasons. Get jabbed or be punished is not a choice, says this unsigned text. Is it punishment? Is that what it is? Is it punishment to not be able to go to a restaurant? Oh, you're punishing me. I can't go to a restaurant. Well, you can get takeout if you just want the restaurant food. Can't go to a Canucks game. Is that punishment? That's a choice. That's a choice. And if you're convicted in your stance and you're willing to live with those consequences, that's fine. I don't want to have to be able to have a driver's license, Jamie. I shouldn't have to pay for one. I don't need a test. Well, I can't drive then. If I want to drive, this is what I'm going to have to do. Am I being yep. punished? Well, and again, it's it's you could equally say, you know, if a player gets cut or sent down because they're getting up there in age and they've lost a step, you know, oh, well, you're punishing him for getting old. It's not punishment. It's just there's only so many jobs to go around. They're extremely competitive. Zach Ronaldo is not guaranteed an NHL job for life, no matter what choices he makes in his personal life. That's just not how it works. This is a man's livelihood, not a trip to Cactus Club. As you said, Jamie, we're talking about a player who's on a two- way deal he wasn't guaranteed a spot on the roster and i would hazard a guess that if you had i don't know name your favorite prominent player in the national hockey league it would be a little bit different issue and we're seeing that play out in the national football league carson wentz still has a job carson wentz is still the quarterback of the indianapolis colts they would prefer him to be vaccinated but there aren't a lot of people in the world who can do his job yep so he still has his job Zach Ronaldo, where he falls in the NHL hierarchy, when you when you are on the bubble where Zach Ronaldo is, when there are a lot of people who can fill your role and other people have what appear to be attractive qualities to an NHL team when it comes to their operation and, and one that you don't happen to have in this case, that person's going to get preferential treatment. Yeah, and you're right. It would be a very different scenario if it was, you know, player X who's making $7 million and playing on the first line somewhere, right? They're, that player, probably not going down to the AHL. They would probably not be suffering the same consequences in this situation that Zach Ronaldo is. But again, that's the reality of the NHL. That's how it works. So again, this isn't about choice. There is still a choice here. You can complain about the consequences. That's your right to do so. And that's what we see a lot of people protesting still when I drove down last weekend downtown, I saw a very large protest. There are a lot of people who are protesting consequences, but there's no mandate that you have to do this. And I am a proponent of having the freedom to choose, but I don't have a problem with society stepping in in many cases saying, these are the consequences for your choices. And these are the ones that have been laid out here. These are the ones that have been laid out by the National Hockey League. And yeah, we can say it's the right thing to do or it's ethical, it's health. That's part of it. Jamie, this is about business. Yes. And it's about making sure their business is not interrupted in some of the ways it was last year, as we know all too well with Vancouver and all the incredible complications that caused and the bizarre way they had to finish out the season. And it's extra important not to have those interruptions this year because you're actually expecting to make money at the gate this year. So you really, really don't want to be moving those games around. Lots of comments coming in on this. 
This one saying players who are vaccinated have the right to be protected from those unvaccinated who say their rights are being infringed on. Scott from Coquitlam says it's about rights versus privilege. It's a privilege to play in the NHL. It's a privilege to go to a restaurant. $300,000 sure looks good to me. His livelihood is not the issue. Bruce says Ronaldo would be subject to quarantine crossing the border. It would cause an issue for numbers for the Blue Jackets when they travel. You can continue to weigh in on this, many other topics throughout the course of the day because our program is being interrupted right now. We're going to turn things over to Sportsnet today. Good stuff from Greg. Big ups back at Mission Control. Roger Shergirl, who you heard me mention a little bit earlier this segment, excellent job producing today. Jamie, I thank you once again for jumping in here today. We'll do this again tomorrow, all right? Let's do it. It's going to be a good one, man. We're hearing from the Canucks, from the GM, from the coach. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, very Canucks-focused coverage tomorrow. The general manager will speak. You will hear that live right here on your home of Canucks hockey. You will hear prominent players when they hit the podium as well. That'll take place tomorrow. Until then, have yourself a great Tuesday. Keep it locked right here on Sportsnet 650, your home of Canucks hockey.